Today's scripture reading will be taken from John 11, 1 through 4, and 38 through 44. And if you're using your pew Bibles, that's on page 951. And it's from the New King James Version. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away this stone. Martha, the sister of him who is dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by me, by, standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came out bound, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Good morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It is an honor to have you here. Uh, if you are from the area, we would love to have you to come back every time that you can. If you're traveling this weekend, we hope and pray that your journey is enjoyable and that it's very safe, and we'd love to have you to visit with us again as you pass through this area. Even though the mission trip has just begun in El Salvador, we've already received word that two have been baptized into Christ as a result of that campaign effort. And so we rejoice with that and let all of us continue to be praying this week for the efforts in Ukraine and the efforts in El Salvador. As we're going throughout our day, each day we will have brothers and sisters in Christ from this congregation that are giving much of their time and their energy and their heart to trying to reach people in that area. And let's make sure that, that we are prayer warriors on their behalf. Let's make sure that we're trying to reach those in our community. Uh, it's not just that we should be evangelistic when we take trips, but let's make sure that we do that very same thing at home. And if you haven't invited a co-worker or a neighbor or a friend lately, make sure you do that this week. And let's bring those that we love to the Savior that we love so much. I couldn't help but think during the prayer that Alan led for us just a few moments ago, a very beautiful prayer. And he mentioned the fact that our elders are evangelistic-minded. You know, I met our elders six years ago today, and um, that was exactly what I thought uh, after meeting with them, was how evangelistic-minded they were. 
And what a blessing it is to be in a congregation that loves the Lord, loves the lost, loves each other. And let's make sure that, that we just continue to be about God's work in that way. An employer looks over to his employee and says, Do you believe in life after death? The employee thought for a minute, kind of caught him off guard. He said, Yeah, I guess I do. I believe in life after death. He says, Okay, well, that explains everything. He says, oh, no, what do you mean? What do you mean that explains everything? He said, you know, when you left early yesterday to go to your grandmother's funeral, she came by later to see if you were in. <laughs> now, you might find a little bit of humor in that, but you know, one of the things that nobody thought here, nobody here thought to themselves, I wonder if that means that she was resurrected from the grave and that she came by after her resurrection to see her grandson. No, you didn't think that. Because we don't see that. You see, there's something that's in common with all the descendants of Adam and Eve, and that is we don't see anyone that can escape death with the very, very few exceptions of those that by the hands of Jesus or the apostles or some of the prophets were able to bring from the dead. But friends, those are the very, very few compared to the billions and billions that have lived. You know, when we think of escape artists, Harry Houdini is the one that comes to mind probably among most of us. It's amazing that he died about 75 to 80 years ago, but yet he still is almost a household name. He's legendary. You very rarely will run into folks that haven't heard of his name. When he first began his performance, he had one trick. It was to put handcuffs on him, and he would challenge people to pay money to participate in this, and anyone that could place handcuffs on him that he could not get out of, he would give them $100. Turn of the century, that was a lot of money. But you know, he never once had to pay the $100. Then he began to work out and work on his agility, and he began to accomplish feats that individuals said were impossible. He could be handcuffed, shackled, and chained together, placed into a box, and he still would escape. The feat that he's most remembered for is the time they was handcuffed, shackled, chained, placed into a trunk that then was locked on the outside. Ice picks were used to dig through the frozen river, and the trunk was pushed off into the river. When everyone had given up on the fact that he would live through that, he emerged. As you can imagine, he and his wife would sometimes talk about death, and he told her, Honey, if anyone can escape from death, I can. If I ever die, I will come back. I will escape death if it's at all possible. Look for me on the anniversary of my death. When he died an untimely death, his wife left a lamp burning underneath his portrait the first year anniversary of his death, she went back and she waited there. And of course, he didn't return. The second year, she waited again. And the third year and the fourth year. And after waiting on the tenth year, she flipped the light off for the first time. And she came to the conclusion that even Harry Houdini could not escape death. Friends, we're talking about a wonderful and powerful topic this morning. Not just death, 
We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about the fact that we can have life after death. As a matter of fact, when Job had lost all of his possessions and he had lost all ten of his children, he'd gone to ten burials. And it was in that sickness that he was suffering of boils from his head to his foot. And it was with a wife that was no longer supportive spiritually as she urged him, curse God and die. It was in that setting that he asked the question that man has been asking as long as man has been around almost. If a man die, shall he live again? John 14 and 14. Of course he wanted to know the answer to that. He had ten children that he wanted to have a reunion with one day. He'd gone to a grave that seemed so final, and he wanted to know that there was something better than this to the existence of mankind. Is that all there is? We're born, we live a while, we suffer, we cry, we, we laugh, and we die, and that's it? Or is there more to existence than that? Job wanted to know the answer. Is that all there was in my children's life? Here I am setting in balls from head to toe. Is this all there is to life? Let me know if a man die, shall he live again? And Jesus Christ came to this earth and he answered Job's question when he said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And so it is. Jesus wants us to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is the resurrection. John the Gospel of John that was so capably read from this morning. It's interesting when we think about it in comparison to the other Gospels. If you think about around 30 to 33 A.D., the first century, Jesus lived. And then you think about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are historical accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And because they're so similar and so basic in nature of being the accounts of Jesus' life, we think of them primarily as being historical and we call them the synoptic gospels. But you know, John stands out there on its own. It too is about the life of Jesus Christ, but it's not a synoptic gospel because there's much interpreted in it. Now John, writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lets us know it's an interpretation from God. In other words, it was written much later than the other Gospels. You say, well, what was the point that John was wanting to make? We don't have to guess at this. John tells us why he wrote this book. Look with me, if you will, to John, the 20th chapter. And John, the 20th chapter, we're going to be reading here in 30 and 31. And notice how John tells us why he wrote this book, what he was trying to accomplish in the writing of this book. And truly Jesus, this is John 20, 30 and 31, and truly Jesus did many other signs, notice that word signs, did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. And by the way, the very last verse of the book of John tells us that if everything Jesus did was written down, all the earth could not hold the number of volumes that this book would contain. Verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John, why did you write this book? He says, I picked out signs. 
most agree, and it would depend. There's a couple of occasions that you might say, mm, that might have been a miracle right there. And so I'm not trying to be just real specific here when I tell you seven, but most agree that there are seven signs in the book of John. Now, also, there are, depending how you count them, there are seven I am statements in the book of John. Now, this is interesting when we think about Jesus saying to us, I am the bread of life, or I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Well, what did he say in this text that we're studying from this morning? If you would, go back again to John, the 11th chapter, and let's think about this text as he says, I am the resurrection. Now, as we look at that, I'll read it again. It's verse 25, John 11, 25 and 26. Notice this. He's talking to Martha and he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, as, as we think about this, we think about him saying to Martha, I am the resurrection. But then we think about later in this chapter, which was already read as a part of our text, verse 43, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, I want you to go back with me to, the, to our first part of our introduction this morning. Let this sink in. Sometimes we read the story so much that we may not really think about this really happened. Two sisters buried their brother. Four days later, that brother came out of the tomb. Now, you imagine his neighbors. You're walking down the road and you look over and Lazarus is sitting on the front porch. I went to your funeral last week. I've never done that before. I've never walked down the road and waved at someone that I went to their funeral last week. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, now here's the question. Which is most important? The fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead or the I am statement of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection. Now, of course, I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but I would like for you to draw a conclusion in your mind right now. If you had to get out a piece of paper and write down one or the other, which would you write down? Which is the most important? That Jesus could perform such a miracle of bringing someone back from a tomb, from the dead? Or that Jesus could proclaim, I am the resurrection. You see, when we study through this text, Jesus reveals which is most important. There's no doubt about it. The one that is most important is the fact that Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Now, if you'll just remember the text that we just left in John, the 20th chapter, he referred to the miracles of Jesus as a sign. Why did John choose to refer to the miracles of Jesus as signs instead of using the word miracle? And the reason that John continued to refer to them as signs is because every one of these miracles were a sign of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, all of the signs were written as a part of this document point to the glory of God. Now, I've given you a similar illustration as this before, not about this thing of Jesus working miracles. I gave you this illustration one time when we were studying about what circumcision was. That circumcision was a sign 
of the covenant that God made. But the same illustration will work here, and I think it'd do well to illustrate. In other words, what is a sign? A sign is something that points to or proves something else. And so we think about a miracle, and we think about God riding through John wants us to realize all the miracles of Jesus were simply signs. They were not the act in themselves where God said, I sent my son just to do that act. He's saying, I sent my son to do acts like that so that it could point to something greater. What are these miracles pointing to? These miracles are pointing to Jesus being the Son of God. Okay, what's the illustration? What if we drove up this morning and there were some visitors standing around our sign, our church sign? They were just standing around it. Well, that's strange for them to be there. I'm, I'm going to go out and speak to them and greet them and, and invite them in. And you, you go out and you greet them and say, can we help you? Or, yeah, we're, we're here to worship this morning. Good, good. Would you like to come in? No, no, we don't want to miss worship. We're going to stay right here. So we don't worship out here. We usually worship in the auditorium, just right inside here. Well, no, this right here says this is the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a sign. That's a sign that just points to. It identifies that this is the location, but we don't meet right there at that sign. It's only directing us toward the place we worship. What was raising Lazarus from the dead? It wasn't the main event. It was an event that Jesus used as an illustration to point to what? To that great I am statement. I am the resurrection. Now, let's see the proof in that as we look at this lesson. Let's go back to the beginning of our text. We're in John, the 11th chapter. We had read for us up uh, from verse 1 and on. And so let's see what was his result, what was his reply when he received the message in verse 3. This is in John, the 11th chapter, in verse 3. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now notice, they didn't send, at least in what's recorded here, and tell him to come. They just knew because they were so loved by Jesus and they knew the nature of Jesus, they expected Jesus to come. They didn't say come. They said, the one you love is sick. What does that tell us about godly people, people that have characteristics of God? It tells us that godly people go when individuals are hurting and sick. They just expected Jesus to go because that's what he had done throughout his life. Messengers give him that message. And notice what his response is when he hears this. Let's read here in verse 4. We're in John, the 11th chapter, in verse 4. Notice this response. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death. You see, he's pointing to the fact here that even though he would die physically, it wasn't, he was not going to remain in that state. He was going to raise him from the dead. So he points to the fact there's going to be a resurrection here. And notice what he says, though. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What is this resurrection? It's just a way for God to be glorified. It's a way for those gathered around to say, He must be the Son of God. He truly must be the I am the resurrection one. Someone says, David, I have trouble with this. Are you saying that I serve a God 
that would cast sickness upon a man and he would suffer. And he would die. And that his family would grieve for days. Just so Jesus could come riding in as the big hero to resurrect him from the grave. I don't know if I want to serve a God like that. That plays games with people's lives. Just so he could be glorified. I'd agree with you. I wouldn't serve a God like that either. Does it say anywhere in this text that God gave the sickness to Lazarus? Does it say anywhere in the text that God allowed Lazarus to die? And then in the middle of that, I need to ask myself a question. Are we on earth right now? Or are we in heaven right now? And as long as we're on earth right now, what do we know is going to be the outcome of every one of us here? without exception. I know you know this, but listen to it to the heart. You're going to die. And it's probably not going to be easy. You're going to be in an accident. You're going to go through some kind of sickness. And those last few weeks may be very hard. And you're not the first. Everybody that's ever lived has. Because we're living on earth and when Adam and Eve sinned, the punishment for sin was death. And we are all going to die. So what happened to Lazarus? He did what we're all going to do. And Jesus chose to use him as a wonderful illustration to prove that he's the resurrection. And I would guess that his family was thrilled that he chose to use him for that. But he says to the messengers, I want to do something that people will see the glory of God. In these next few minutes, let's see this same thing emphasized. If we were to read on, and we don't have time, but if we were to read on 5, 6, 7, 8 and following, we would see that he's going to turn to his disciples and tell them that he's going to go back to Bethany, which was just a few miles out of Jerusalem. If you were to read at the very end of the 10th chapter, verse 31 and following, you would see that the last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, that they picked up the stones, gathered the stones, and were ready to take the life of Jesus. So as you can imagine, the disciples were not excited about going back. They feared for the life of Jesus and probably for their own life also, as Thomas even said, let's go die with him. And so it's in the middle of all of this discussion about whether or not Lazarus was dead, because after all, Jesus used the word sleep when he spoke of his condition to the disciples. And so it's also in the middle of the decision that the disciples are trying to make, are we going to follow this guy back to a very deadly place? that Jesus speaks to them about why he would do such a thing. Let's read this as we're going to read now, verse 15, John the 11th chapter. Verse 14, he clearly explains what the situation is. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now why do you say I'm glad that I was not there? The messenger traveled about a day's journey. Now, when we go back and start counting, because when Jesus arrived there, he'd already been in the tomb four days. He stayed there two days before he returned. 
And that return trip would have been a day. Well, that calculates to four days. See, the point is that when the messenger arrived, Lazarus was probably already dead. If not, he was going to be dead within just a few uh, hours. So Jesus is saying, I'm glad I wasn't there. Jesus, why were you glad you weren't there? He's now pointing to the fact of glory. Look what this is going to do. Here you are, you're going to be my apostles. You're going to see that I am the resurrection. I'm glad that you're going to have the opportunity to see this. So they begin their journey. So we see what he tells the disciples. I'm glad you're going to see this, and the point is that you may believe. That you may believe. Lazarus' resurrection is going to be an illustration of him being the I am the resurrection. As he travels closer, verse 17 and following, we see that Martha runs out to him. As Martha runs out to him, she just says, if you'd only been here, and Jesus begins to answer her. And let's read verse 23 and following. In John the 11th chapter and 23, Jesus says to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You hear her understanding of, of doctrine? She believes in Jesus being the Son of God. She understands that there's going to be a resurrection in the last day. Friends, we, we can't cast stones at Martha here. She has a good understanding of doctrinal things. But now notice this. Jesus says in 25, I'm not saying to you her understanding was perfect, okay? It's just she did have some things very much in order. Let's look in 25. Jesus says to her, and here it is again, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now let's pause right here before we read this next verse. He wanted her to know something that had not apparently clicked in her mind. I'm the resurrection. Do you believe this? And notice her answer. And by the way, we don't know where the pauses were in her answer. We do not know what the tone of voice was. But I want to read it to you a way that it might have been, okay? Here's a way it might have been. We'll read the words just as they are. But it might have been like this, where he's saying, I am the resurrection. Do you believe? And she says in 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Have you ever ducked a question like that? You talk about ducking a question completely. Do you believe I'm the resurrection? Yes, Lord, I believe you're the Son of God. She understood he was the Son of God. And she believed in a resurrection in the end. But she was having a very difficult time believing that Jesus Christ was the resurrection. She understood a doctrine, but she wasn't willing to believe that Jesus was the one. She hadn't yet learned Christ, as Ephesians 4 teaches us to do. We don't have time to delve into this deeply at all, but if I can mention something, especially for those of you that are more spiritually mature to think about, Christ doesn't want us just to see Him as doctrine. He wants us to love Him. I am not suggesting that you can separate Christ and doctrine. You can't. 
But at the same time, if the only way I see Christ is just doctrine, I've missed the person. It would be like a, a father saying, Oh, son, stop loving me. I just want you to love what I say. Don't love me. Can you imagine? And here, he's addressing Martha, a woman that understands resurrection and a woman that understands he's the Son of God and he's trying to bring those together and say, don't you see, I am the resurrection. A tremendous thought, a tremendous challenge. If we had time to develop it fully, we could even arrive to discussing this. Do you see yourself as a person, a body that has a soul? Or do you see yourself as a soul that has a body? That'll change where you spend eternity. Because if you think that you're a body that has a soul, you're going to live for the earth. And yet, on the other hand, if you believe that you're a soul that is only residing for the short time in this body, you realize then, as long as I know the resurrected one, as long as I'm living my life for Jesus Christ, I will never die. There will be a funeral where the soul will separate from the body, but the soul hasn't died. The soul is very much alive. And it changes everything. It changes the way we live on this earth. It changes the way we plan the future. It changes the way we see Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not just doctrine. Jesus Christ is the resurrection. And because He is, we submit to every doctrine He gives us because we believe that He's the resurrected one. Let's look at the last one. As we go further down in the 11th chapter, we see that he talks with Mary, he talks with the Jews, and they go... Oh, by the way, we need to finish Martha here. As we read down, let's read 39 and 40, and let's see what he says to Martha. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, do you think she believes he's the resurrected one? Listen to her statement here and see if you think that she believes. It says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by this time, there's a stench. He's been there four days. See what she's saying? Leave the stone there. You don't want to open that up, Lord. And it's almost as if he's grabbing Martha by the shoulders and saying to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Martha, when are you going to believe it? I am the resurrection. And just in case anyone else had not been listening, let's go now to verse 41 and following. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Have you noticed something about this text? We've read every time Jesus has spoken to a group of individuals, and what did he say to them? 
the messengers came and told him that Lazarus had died, or Lazarus was very sick, and what did he say? I'm going to use this as a chance to glorify God and the Son. He goes and he talks to Martha. And what did he tell Martha? You're going to come to realize that I am the resurrection. In between that, he talked to the disciples. And what did he say to the disciples? I'm glad you're going to have the opportunity to see the Son of God glorified. Now, just in case there's anybody else that hasn't heard all this, before he raises him from the dead, he says a prayer to God. And he says in that prayer, I'm saying this, God, so that all those that would hear would believe that I'm the Son of God. The resurrection or the raising of the dead of Lazarus was an illustration to point to the great truth. What was the great truth? I am the resurrection. We're out of time. Please listen to this closing because this pulls it all together. A few verses up, we read that Mary was weeping, the Jews were were weeping, and Jesus was groaning in his spirit and troubled. He then asked, where have you laid him? They said, come and see. And then the verse simply says, Jesus wept. The word for weeping of Mary and the Jews was wailing. If there were two individuals sitting on this front pew here wailing, everybody in the auditorium would know that they were crying, wailing, much emotion, tears, sobs. But yet, have you ever noticed before, it says Jesus groaned in his spirit. Groaning is an anger and a noise associated with the anger. The troubled spirit is the agitation. What was it churning within Jesus that he became angry at the situation? Do you think he was looking over at them crying and saying, I can't believe they would cry. Why would they cry like that? They ought to not cry like that. No, I don't believe that at all. What was the anger that was raging in Jesus about this whole situation? He was standing in the shadow of death. That was the anger. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, what the last enemy that Jesus is going to destroy? Death. Where did death come from? Man's sin. Jesus was standing there watching the people that he loved feel the effects of living on this earth, suffering death, and it angered him. I can imagine that Jesus would have been thinking, I can't wait to put Satan in his final place. I can't wait on that end to be able to put death, the last enemy, down. And the children of God can go into heaven and there'll be no more hospitals, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more funeral homes, and there'll be no more cemeteries. And with all of this, Jesus wept. And that's not the word for wailing. That's the word for tears shedding down one's face. Friends, we're in a spiritual battle. And there's only one way to win this battle. And it's the one that said, I am the resurrection. Just in case you don't know, you are a soul that is housed in a body. And it won't be long that that body will be no more. And on that day, you will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the resurrection. But let's make sure that we also know that He's our Savior that day.
If you haven't been baptized into Christ for remission of sins, won't you make Him your Savior today? If you have been baptized into Christ, but somewhere along the way, sin has separated you from God, won't you come back repenting of those sins and confess and let's pray forgiveness? Let's make sure today, as we think about as a nation, Independence Day, that we are free from the bondage of sin and that we found our liberty in Jesus Christ, the one who could say, I am the resurrection. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.